If you've been with us these last few weeks, we've been talking about uh, these Old Testament festivals and how they match up and parallel perfectly with the life of Christ. Uh, we've dealt with the Passover meal. We've dealt with the Day of Atonement. We've looked at a lot of these different festivals. Uh, and just briefly, the festival today that I think is interesting is a festival called the First Fruits. And basically the way that that works, it's the day after Passover, and they would ask all the folks to go out into their fields, and they would literally take the first fruits, the best, and then they would present that uh, to the priest, but they were basically presenting it to God and communicating, God, we're going to give you the best we've got because you've given us your best. And ultimately, we know that because, because he gave us his son, the ultimate sacrifice. I mean, that is as good as it gets, the best. Now, if you're like me, I have a lot of old school memories of Easter Sunday, and the phrase that we used to hear all the time is, make sure you wear your Sunday best. How many have ever heard that? Good. I'm looking around, and, and honestly, I don't see it. But anyway, here, <laughs> but here's the good news. Uh, and this is, you know, I'm, I'm getting old because I remember uh, the women having brand new dresses, and they had those huge, beautiful hats, and they would even wear white gloves. The little girls had white gloves. And uh, the men usually didn't get a new suit, but they would always get a new tie. And everybody just looked sharp. Even me in my polyester, you remember those striped pants? I mean, if there was a fire, the church would have gone up like that because of all the polyester. But man, those were great memories. Now, I was thinking about, uh, some of you are probably confused. You're like, um, John, are you ever going to wear a tie? I even asked my wife yesterday, should I wear a tie? And she said, no. But I thought it was only be fair for you to know, a few Easter's ago, I did wear a tie, and so I just want to let you know, I want you to see, the, yeah, so anyway, and uh, it's, it's hard to live with that, okay, you know, yeah, we, all, we all pay a price, Marie pays a dear one, so anyway, here, here's what I, I really want to share with you this morning, is how important it is that we get into the story of Jesus Christ, now we all love a good love story, all of us do, and uh, let me give you an example of a of a good love story, okay? Maybe you've heard of this. It's a, it's a little love story called Beauty and the Beast. Anybody ever heard of that? Good. A few of you? Good. Well, it's interesting when you look at that because it, it demonstrates what great love will overcome, the obstacles. It will overcome distance, family heritage, social tension, even war. But Beauty and the Beast, I mean, let's be honest, that's a totally different kind of love story. I mean, you got a beast who lives in a massive gloomy, fortified castle. You've got this beautiful woman who lives in a village where it's always sunny, everyone sings, and her biggest problem is there's just not enough books. I mean, isn't that the world we all live in? But if you track it back, it's interesting when you look at the Beauty and the Beast. It actually started in the second century. Uh, Apollos wrote Once Upon a Time, and then this story started to evolve about the transformation of love. In the 1500s, historically, uh, there was a man by the name of Petras Gonslavas. And Petras had a terrible disease where he had hair all over his face, all over his body. I think he coached my seventh grade track team. But he had just <laughs> terrible hair all over. And here's what's remarkable. In France, he went on to have a prestigious career. Uh, he married. He had many children. Some of those kids had this uh, terrible disease, but they think that that is where the whole beauty and beast started to evolve. And then came Disney. And in 1991, they cranked out this little animated film called Beauty and the Beast. 
for $25 million. And it generated and is still going over $425 million in sales. I have memories. It was the first movie. Uh, my oldest daughter, Rachel, was just barely two. And I remember that was the first movie she went to. And so I have good memories. Matter of fact, her husband, the other day, they went to the next Disney movie. And I said, how'd Rachel do? And he said, she just bawled like a baby. And I said, well, yeah, that's because she saw the first one with her dad. And it's obvious who she loves more. Okay, so we know that. Okay. But... Here's what's remarkable. In 2017, when that came out in March, that weekend made over $170 million in sales. And the other thing that demonstrates the impact, it was the first time that an animated movie was ever nominated as the best movie of the year. Anybody want to guess what won the movie of the year when that movie came out, Beauty and the Beast? Silence of the Lambs. Another feel-good love story. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> But at the end of it all, we love a movie, and we love stories where love wins, and love triumphs, and love overcomes all the odds. And here we land on Easter, and it's not a good story. It's the greatest story. And here's what I love about it. It's not a fictional story. Here's what it says in Romans 6, 4, and I love this. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of of life. Whenever I'm sharing the gospel with somebody who's uh, thinking about baptism, this is always the scripture that I share. Because I said, what you're identifying with is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Like, this is Easter. Every baptism is Easter. So I just want you to know straight up today, this may be something that's on your heart right now. And you're thinking, wait a minute, I don't, I don't even see a tank. Well, we've got a tank. We're ready for you. And you may be thinking, well, what if it rains? Well, tough. A kid's already done that, okay? We can do that. What if it's lightning? What a great way to go. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Seriously. So you might be wrestling right now, and you're like, man, I, I need this in my life. So I want you to be praying about that. I really do. I want you to be praying about that. This morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to celebrate the proof and then the ripple effect of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what that means. So I want you to listen carefully to Matthew 28, verses 1 through 6. And then I want us together to read verse 6. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone, and he sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning, his clothes were like snow, and the guards were afraid of him. And they shook, and they became like dead men. And the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. Now let's read verse 6 together. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come to the place. Let that sink in. We have a man over at church. His name is John Tweedy. And for years, he just did not want to accept God. He did not want to accept Christ. And so he's got quite a story, and we want you to hear his story at this time. I remember clearly the time that I started to become a non-believer. I was about 10 years old, and we'd gotten home, and my grandfather was waiting for us in the driveway. He clearly looked dismayed. A few weeks later, we ended up moving in with my grandparents in a new home, and soon after that, I figured out that my grandmother had terminal cancer. 
The doctors only gave her a couple months to live, but she was a tough old lady and she hung in there for a full two years and it was great to get that extra time with her. But getting a front row seat to the destruction of this beautiful lady who I'd loved so much was, was more than I could take. And so after she passed, I became a non-believer. I spent the next 10 years of my life throwing myself into the sciences, which always felt natural to me. And I found all the answers I needed. Um, I was quite happy without a God. In 1996, my plans for being a lifelong non-believer got messed up. I met my wife, and shortly after we got married, when we moved to Bloomington in 2002, Kristen wanted to find a church home because she was a believer. Church felt like a strange place for a non-believer to be, but the people were welcoming. I enjoyed the music, and I even found people who were willing to engage me in my doubts uh, in an intellectual way, um, an evidence-based way, and that was shocking to me. Um, I always assumed that the Bible was basically a collection of fairy tales for weak-minded people who were, couldn't face their own mortality. And so it was so eye-opening for me to have real discussions with people, sharing their faith with me, and, but also allowing me to ask any question I wanted to. Outlandish questions, crazy questions. Um, and no matter what I asked, they were non-judgmental. They listened to me and they gave me a safe place to be able to explore the, the difficult, difficult doubts that I had. It took me four long years to work through all of my questions and doubts because I had them all. Who is God? Where is he? Um, why is he so mean? Who's this Jesus guy? How did he possibly rise from the dead? And how can we possibly believe this, this book that we have that's 2,000 years old that's been copied a gazillion times into so many languages? Um, I had to ask all of those questions, and I probably read nearly 100 books, books by non-believers and believers. I probably covered most of the world religions. I wanted to attack this from every angle I could think of. Um, but after four years of asking all those questions, I was, I was finally ready. I felt like I had enough questions answered that I could become a believer. I just hope that in some way my story will resonate with non-believers here today. You know, no matter whether you're angry at God, don't believe there's a God, maybe you've just been drugged here by your spouse, it doesn't matter. I want to give you what was given to me, a safe place where you can explore your questions um, and, and figure out where it is you are with God. I got a hold of John uh, this week, and uh, here's what's exciting. What he's doing is at uh, the Bedford campus, East campus, our campus, he's just basically throwing out a huge net saying, if you're interested and you've always had these questions and you want a safe place, you let us know. And then they're going to gather the names and they're going to set up a spot to meet and to get into these discussions. So that might be where you're at. Seriously, if you just let us know. We are not in any way running away from Christ and we in no way are saying, hey, you've got doubts. We don't want to talk to you. Absolutely, we want to talk and we want to share. Because we believe in the life of Christ, in the burial of Christ. We believe in the resurrection of Christ. And again, we're not afraid to talk about those things. So we'd love to talk to you. So let's talk for just a few moments about the proof of the resurrection. And if you're going to get into this, and this will only take a minute, because the first point is absolutely ridiculous, and that is, uh, you have to look at the theory called the swoon theory. And the swoon theory is this. Jesus didn't actually die. And in other words, he came off the cross. They put him in the tomb. And the cool air woke him up. And then somehow the disciples got the rock removed, took out the guards, really, and then moved him. It sounds like a Tom Cruise movie. You know what I'm saying? 
And yet there are people who actually buy into the swoon theory. Folks, he died. We know that when his side was pierced and the blood and the water, that his heart was shattered, he died. This week in our men's group, uh, we asked a powerful question, and I think it's a very significant question. And the question was, what are all the ways that Jesus was humiliated on his journey to the cross? And we came up with at least 19 ways that Jesus was humiliated to the point of death. Folks, he died. We have a resurrection because we have a Savior that died for us. Those of you that love to take notes, I just briefly want to share three S's. If you want to write them on your bulletin, because if you're in discussion with friends about the resurrection, I think these are important to know. The first is stone, the stone. Uh, Jesus was buried in a tomb, not in the ground, but buried in a tomb. And Joseph of Arimathea was the wealthy man who gave his right, gave his tomb to Jesus. Matter of fact, if you remember, the man next to him was Nicodemus. Does that name ring a bell? from John 3.16, and they took care of getting the body of Christ down from a cross, getting it prepared, and went in the tomb. Now, when they would place the body in a large tomb like this, it's estimated, scholars say, that that opening was anywhere from four to five feet. Well, you didn't leave an opening like that because of animals. And remember, this was a very high politically charged situation, and so they had to guard that. And so what they would do traditionally is they would take a large piece of granite, they would hone it down, and then they would actually have a rut across the ground, and then they would roll this huge granite across the stone, across that opening. It's estimated that that stone weighed anywhere between 1.5 and 2 tons. I mean, this is a huge stone. Matter of fact, Mark says as the women approached, they said, how are we going to move this stone because the stone is Huge. It is big. And so here's what you need to understand. Uh, they would take that stone. The Romans then placed ropes around it. They put a uh, wax placement to bring the ropes together. Then they took a seal, and they put an emblem on a ring onto that wax seal. And that basically meant, get out. This is, for our world today, this is a crime scene. Nobody enters. Today, they put yellow tape around the tomb. That's exactly what's going on. Now, the stone is important because we need to understand what happened to that stone. In Matthew 28, 2, it says, and an angel rolled back the stone. But I love in John 20, verse 1, it says, and the stone was taken away. Now, if you translate that in the Greek, it means it was picked up and carried away. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a, a pretty good imagination. And I close my eyes and I imagine the angels that showed up that early morning at that tomb. And I got to tell you something, this, this was not Barney Fife, you know what I'm saying? This wasn't Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. These were some bad boys that showed up. I mean, I want you to think when those angels showed up at that tomb and they took that two-ton stone and they threw it away, yeah, they fell like they were asleep. Why? They had never seen something that powerful. I would have loved to heard that conversation. I think it was something like this. That rock is coming down, and he's coming out. That's what I think happened. Now, you can do whatever you want with that. I don't care. But God's in charge. And so we need to understand it's important that the stone was removed. Second of all, the soldiers. In Matthew 28, 11 through 15, we read a disturbing account of the soldiers running back into town and saying that they had fallen asleep 
and that the disciples had stole the body of Jesus. Now, think about this. I want you to think about the soldiers that are there that day. These are, Rome, these are warriors. And I, I heard this from Dr. David Jeremiah, and this is interesting, that in a, an intense situation like this, they didn't just send three or four soldiers. They would actually send a legion, which would be 16 Roman soldiers. And four soldiers, shoulder to shoulder, would stand guard. The other 12 were back up. And then every four hours, they would rotate those men standing side by side. Do you really think that these fishermen are going to take out 16 Roman soldiers? Absolutely not. you got to remember, these are killing machines. This was their highest priority. And by the way, if you fall asleep, they didn't get community service. This isn't little 500 weekend. You know what they get? Death. This is death. There's no way they're letting anything get to that body. And then here's the most important thing, the sightings. There's at least seven times that Jesus appeared to others from the time of his resurrection to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Matter of fact, 1 Corinthians 15, 6 says that he appeared to over 500 people. Now, what's interesting, uh, there was somebody who did intense research on this, and they said that if you took all of the accounts of the people that Jesus spoke to, eyewitnesses, that if you took those eyewitnesses and you put them on a modern-day stand, that they would have over, and you gave them six minutes each, they'd have over 50 hours of one-on-one testimony that Jesus conquered death. Folks, we need to understand that the resurrection is real and it changes everything. C.S. Lewis said this, Jesus was either liar, lunatic, or Lord. You can try to shut him up, you can spit at him, kill him, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us and he did not intend for it to be. 1 Corinthians 4 says, If Christ had not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. It means everything. If you can refute the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as a believer, you've got nothing to stand on. So when we come together and we worship on Easter Sunday, let me tell you, it matters. If you haven't had a chance... Uh, Marina, I got a chance to see a case uh, for Christ, and uh, it's still at the theaters, and I encourage you to go see that, just to get down into the evidence of Jesus Christ. But is it just the evidence? It's the ripple effect of the resurrection. I love what it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 57 and 58. But thanks to God, he gives us the victory our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The resurrection matters. How much? Um, If you could watch Brad Pontius and not get choked up and him talking about what's happened in Kurdistan, That literally that you have ISIS looking you straight in the eye saying, if you do not denounce Jesus Christ, you'll lose everything. And they said, then you take everything I've got. Why would they do that? Because they believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And folks, sometimes we read stories and we're like, oh, that was so long ago. This is happening right now. Think of all the Christians that are being killed right now because they're willing to stand up for the death and the burial of the resurrection of Christ. And then I think in my own life of the things that I get upset about as I approach Easter, the things that don't matter. This matters the most, the ripple effect. I want to just share with you what the resurrection did to the early church. And if you want to jot these down, I got to tell you, it is amazing. When Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you know that he just lit a fire in those followers. Two years later, we know in Acts 5.28, that it says that Jerusalem was filled with the words and the love of Jesus. Now the gospel is being multiplied through people. Four and a half years later after his ascension, in Acts 9.31, it says that now that the word of God was spreading to Galilee and Samaria, now it isn't just multiplying people, now it's multiplying churches. And then 19 years after the ascension of Christ, in Acts 17.6, I love this phrase, it says, and now the world is being turned upside down because of followers of Jesus Christ saying, I take this seriously. I hope when we leave this place today that we take it seriously. I love the words of Margaret Feinberry. She says, faith invites us to live wonderstruck, a journey marked by holy courage and irrepressible hope. Hope. If you don't write anything else down, grab a pen and just write this in your Bible. Write it on one of your kids. I don't care. Just write this number, and it's the number 71. Now, I want you to think about that number 71. 71 times we read the word hope in the New Testament. 70 of those times come after the resurrection. Now, that ought to tell us something. This is the hope that everyone has here today in Jesus Christ. Even during the most desperate times of your life, he's there for you. You may remember this date. Yesterday was an anniversary of this day, April 15th. It was 2013 that uh, everyone else thought it was going to be just a normal day in Boston, taking in the Boston Marathon, and then a couple of bombs went off. There was a woman by the name of Rebecca Gregory who was there with her four-year-old boy named Noah, and she said the bomb was so powerful that she felt like, felt like a rag doll when it just threw her side. It shattered both of her legs, and she did what any mother would do. She was desperately looking around for her son. And she was able to reach out to him, but because of the chaos, they actually took her to one hospital and took him to another. Well, he walked away basically with stitches, but not her. Her legs were shattered. She spent weeks in Boston, and finally she was able to go home to Texas. She said she remembered getting out of the van, and they put her in the wheelchair, and her little boy Noah ran out to her, and he threw his arms around her, and he whispered in her ear, don't worry, Mom, we're never leaving home. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> but he's like any little boy. He's got a lot of courage, and he went to kindergarten, and he watched the pain and the agony that his mom went through. And she said the thing that she cherished most was it was... It was terrible pain, but she was able to get into a car and eventually drive him 20 minutes to school. And she said that was the greatest 20 minutes of her day, every day, to just talk to Noah. And he had a lot of questions. Well, after 17 surgeries, she knew uh, that they, were, they weren't going to be able to save that leg 
her left leg. She thought, how am I going to tell Noah? Uh, he's going to be scared. Uh, he's, he's probably going to be embarrassed because here's his mom with this amputated leg. I don't even know how to break the news to him. So she's driving him to school, and any of you that have first grade boys, you know that they just kind of cut to the chase. And he said, hey, mom, what are we going to do about that leg? And she said, what do you mean? He goes, you cutting it off? What are we doing here? And then she's like, okay, didn't see that coming. She said, well, no, I, I think I'm going to have to have my leg amputated. And then she thought in her mind for a split second, I wonder if he's scared. I wonder if he thinks he's going to be humiliated. And he just, all these thoughts, and he had this sly grin on his face, and then he said, great, I get a robot mom. I love a kid like that. And I thought about that's exactly where we're all at, if you think about it. Uh, we may not have an amputated leg, but I tell you what, we're pretty busted up. There's nobody in this room that didn't pretty messed up. Uh, even Franklin, I, it was interesting. Doug and I, as we were praying with him, and he's just like, oh, man, I've got so much stuff. And, and Doug and I are like, oh, you have no idea. I mean, nobody's got it together. We're all messed up. We all have to lean into the hope of Jesus Christ. Every one of us need desperately the hope of Jesus Christ. It's not just an Easter story. Folks, this is real stuff. This is the game changer. For some of you, as uh, we're approaching an invitation time, for some of you, it's like, you know, I've thought about this whole baptism thing, and I keep coming up with excuses, and I just need to do this, and we want you to know our prayer team is going to be up here. We're here to help. We'll do whatever it takes. For some of you, you may just need to pray. Just come up and say, hey, I want to pray with someone because I'm going through some stuff right now, and I just need to experience God's love, and I need to experience his hope again. Wherever you're at, we just want you to know we're going to be here for you because we're a family, and that's what family does. So let's stand, and let's sing.